0: Welcome to the inaugural episode of Lowy Institute Conversations, a new podcast in which Lowy Institute experts and some of the world's leading thinkers will delve into the big issues in international affairs, foreign policy, and global geopolitics. My name is Ben Scott, and I direct the Rules-Based Order Project at the Lowy Institute. This project, which is supported by the Department of Defence's Strategic Policy Grants Programme, Aims to deepen our understanding of the rules-based order and its implications for Australia's security and defence. That order was described as a fundamental strategic interest in Australia's 2016 Defence White Paper. The rules-based order can be loosely defined as a shared commitment to conduct international affairs in accordance with accepted rules and norms. The United States played a founding role. After the Second World War, Washington drove the establishment of new international institutions centred on the United Nations and what became the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And in the following decades, the US led the expansion and thickening of this system. But that system has been under increased pressure in recent years, and the Trump presidency dealt it an especially harsh blow. The Lowy Institute asked six foreign policy experts what President Biden should do differently. Their recommendations and debate have just been published in a new digital interactive on our website titled The United States and the Rules-Based Order. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to two of them, Stacy Goddard and Michael Mazar. Stacy is the Mildred Lane Kemper Professor of Political Science and Faculty Director of the Madeleine Corbel Albright Institute for Global Affairs at Wellesley College. She's also a fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Welcome, Stacy. Thanks for having me. And Mike is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us. Stacey, if I can go to you first, when it comes to the rules-based order, do you think Joe Biden should just try to pick up where Obama left off four years ago?
1: No, no, Ben. I mean, there's <laughs> there's no reset here um, for a number of reasons. I mean, the most obvious one is, regardless of what we think about it, the last four years happened. And I think in particular for the rules-based order, Uh, there are two things that are quite evident. Uh, First of all, is that a lot of the rules-based order and a lot of its core institutions really need significant reform if they're going to be able to deal with the type of collective challenges that we're facing today. So to take the two, in some ways, really obvious ones, I think that there's no doubt, for example, that the World Health Organization that needs some reform and rebuilding after what we've experienced in this global pandemic I also think that looking at something like the Paris Climate Accords to just say something like, oh, let's go back to Paris, just doesn't make any sense. We understand that Paris is no longer an effective way of achieving action on climate change. So for that reason alone, we can't go back. But I think the other reason is quite obvious. We now understand that there isn't just some sort of harmony of interest that's going to get us to reform the rules-based order. And it's particularly obvious now that the United States, China... Russia and European countries, as well, on very different pages when it comes to the rules-based order. So we can't just make the type of assumptions that we would when Obama was leaving
0: office. Thanks, Stacey. In your piece, you talk quite a bit about great power competition, in particular, and and one of your arguments, if I understand it, is that previous versions of the rules-based order, in many ways, overpromised. That uh, they promised, in some ways, that we would be able to tame the liberal powers. Whereas, Mike, you argue that the rules-based order actually did too much, that it it overreached in some ways. In fact, Michael, when I read your argument, I saw a similarity between a frequent complaint that our Prime Minister makes about what he calls a negative globalism. And I just wanted to read what he says about that to you and see if if, if it gels with what what you're thinking about the rules-based order. In his words, we should avoid any reflex towards a negative globalism that coercively seeks to impose a mandate from an often ill-defined, borderless global community and are still, an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy. Does that chime with your critique, of the rules-based order?
2: Yes, and I think that, you know, Stacey and I probably don't actually disagree about this. I think that it's possible to say that the order overpromised and that it, in service of those overpromises, it ran a little bit out of control. I think one of the critical balances is, and this is a reason why, in answer to your last question, I think I agree 100% with Stacey that there's no going back, in part because partly due to the last four years, partly due to, you know, January 6th, and the attack on the Capitol. But before that, a mishandled COVID response, the Black Lives Matter protests, before that, uh, the financial crisis in Iraq. The United States simply does not have the position that it had as recently as 2013, 2014 in terms of leading a normatively based order. I'm not saying that it has lost it entirely, that it can't get some of that back, but it, I think it has to approach the promotion of norms and values in particular with great nuance over the next several years. And so that's one reason why I think it's even more true than when we, we reached that conclusion in our RAND study that forcible value promotion was pushing the boundaries of a shared order way beyond what was sustainable. And the trick, of course, is to find some kind of balance where you can be powerfully advocating for norms and values supporting them where possible, um, getting behind the voluntary embrace of those norms in other places, but not trying to shove them down anybody's throat, kind of like your prime minister's quote. You know, I think that there's plenty of smart people in the Biden administration who I'm sure realize that need for that balance and hopefully we'll begin to see it.
0: Right. The rules-based order, it seems to me, can be understood in two broad ways. I mean, one, it's often, where it's characterized as a liberal international order, it's associated very much with uh, values promotion. And, uh, and and using that as a tool to constrain or counter, in some ways, revisionist powers. But another way of understanding it, which you talk about a bit, Stacey, is about managing great power relations, which in some ways is almost value-free when we think about the arms control agreements that limited great power competition in the Cold War. The way that issue seems to be figuring now is, uh, again, going back to your comments on Paris, climate change. And uh, we're hearing a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of members of the administration making reassuring statements that uh, though they will pursue greater cooperation with China on climate change, which is very welcome, that that won't be in any way at the expense of, of competition or efforts to counter China, whether it's in the South China Sea or on human rights, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, um, just just going to use first states. Do you think that's a balance that can be struck or, or does or do there really have to be trade-offs in the end?
1: So this is going to sound like wishy-washy answer, but I think, uh, you know, it's it depends, right? So I think that ultimately what we need to think about is the rules-based order is a means, you know, it is not necessarily an ends in and of itself. And, and and so why is that important? Well, if you want to imagine what United States grand strategy should be, for example, ultimately it should be oriented towards protecting interests, like preserving democracy and and other liberal values. So I think that's absolutely essential. So how do you do that through an order? Well, in some cases, and I think with like-minded partners, that becomes kind of what some have referred to as a very thick order, right? It is about producing these shared institutions and rules that are very democratic and they center human rights and they center those types of liberal practices. But in order to preserve democracy at home, you also need to have partnerships on issues like climate change and on issues like arms proliferation because those bear catastrophic costs. If you allow proliferation to get out of control, if you allow climate change to get out of control. Um, So it depends on whether or not it needs to be value infused. Now, Ben, though, I think you're bringing up a really important question is how do you have both, right? And I think this is going to be the balancing act. How do you both cooperate with China on issues like climate change, but still draw the line, so to speak, on other issues such as human rights? And I think a lot of that's going to be issue specific. I think, for example, that China, its leaders are reasonable. It understands it needs to collaborate on climate change. It understands it's going to bear a lot of costs on climate change. So I think there, there's a lot of reason to kind of participate in this thin order. But there are other parts that are by definition, I think are going to look more like club goods, right? That They're going to be a little more exclusionary. And then I think the question is, how do you have an exclusionary order without making that necessarily a competitive order, something that just escalates into uncontrollable conflict.
0: Just pausing on the concept of the thick order, which I think you would characterize as being at kind of the center of the rules-based order, including perhaps the D10, I was struck by another part of your argument where you said that previously, by providing public goods such as access to free trade and collective security, the United States has merely enabled its opponents while allowing its friends and allies to free ride on its benevolence. Is that free riding something you see as a problem as being uh, associated with that thick sort of central part of the international order, which would include a country like Australia, I assume?
1: Absolutely. There in that discussion of free riding, in some ways I was talking about the perception of what happened um, with allies and partners. Because I actually think that when you're talking about a club good, right? When you in other words, you're talking about a partnership of, of like-minded states, you're supposed to have a little more free writing. I mean, that, that's part of what's supposed to happen. It's not simply supposed to be transactional. So yes, the United States might provide some common goods. Actually, I want to be clear, I agree with Mike that it shouldn't be the only provider of common goods, but provide some common goods. But in exchange for this, it gets a little deeper reciprocity, right? So for example, uh, the idea that when the United States is going to sit down and talk to Germany and talk to France and talk to the UK, about 5G technologies, right? There's already a standing relationship there and room for collaboration. So it's not necessarily simply transactional on every single issue. It's not simply who's paying for NATO now. It can be, we're going to make sure that we're generally cooperative on a number of issues having to do with security. Right. Um, But that type of reciprocity, I think can happen in those thick relationships. It's less likely to happen for very good reason when those relationships aren't so thick and aren't so dense and when values aren't necessarily shared.
0: Right. The challenges you both listed and the sort of agenda you set out in your arguments is one that's uh, extremely ambitious uh, or at least extremely challenging. On the other hand, you both agree, and I think, Mike, you in particular say that the United States now is not the United States it was four years ago or even, I mean, especially the United States of the immediate post-war period. So uh, can the uh, balancing act be struck? Can the challenges be met to you, Mike?
2: Well, I think in theory, yes. I mean, the the challenge in part is the past dependence or momentum of U.S. foreign policy insists on certain things as part of any credible U.S. foreign policy of condemning every human rights violation, responding to every form of aggression, you know, essentially having the final voice on almost every development in international politics. And both because of the limits to U.S. power and the limits of tolerance in the rest of the world, I think that form of leading an order has has been overtaken by events. Um, Just as an example on the value point, I think there's a perfectly potent U.S. value promotion strategy built around what is, like, if you look at responsibility to protect, it actually has three pillars, right? And only the third pillar is forcible intervention. The second pillar is when a country decides to go in this direction of its own volition and asks for help, then the international community should help. So the United States could be doing a lot more in terms of assisting with democracy transition, helping democracies in trouble, helping you know refugee populations. There's a tremendous amount we could do to fulfill our commitment to certain values. And then the trick is, as Stacey was implying, you're going to be dealing with China on several issues and someone's going to say, how can you possibly talk to them given what's going on in Xinjiang? And I don't think it's that complicated to explain to the American people or the world that the United States has to have dealings with countries that it Has disagreements with on a normative level. It doesn't imply endorsement of those policies to be making progress in other areas. So, yes, I think it is entirely possible to balance those things. But that balance does exist, and I would say, in what I think is a little bit of a fallow space in US foreign policy between the hyper traditionalist version of we're going to recreate the world a la 2007 or 2013 or something or earlier and a more extreme version, I would say, of kind of a restraint or retrenchment argument. And to me, the wise course is in between those things, but the level of detailed policy options, the level of people who are really focused on working in that space is not nearly as great as as on the polls. And so that's the only thing that concerns me is that there just might not be enough of a critical mass of ideas, thinking, commitment to find this middle way But it's
0: there if we want it. So from what you're saying, is it a staffing question of the administration? I mean, is is it just a matter of getting the right people in the right place to to, to make that space no longer fellow?
2: Well, it is partly that. I mean, part, you know, the the challenge is I don't, um, you know, I know some of the folks that have gone in the administration, uh, tremendously smart people. And I think people that have learned a lot of lessons. I mean, begin with Joe Biden. This was the guy who was the number one skeptic of the Afghan surge. And I was working in government at that time and watched that debate play out. And there was an enormous amount of momentum on the other side of the argument. And he stuck to his guns and said, partly, I think, because he had learned certain lessons out of the Iraq experience and was not willing to accept on faith kind of a generic argument of American power credibility. And if we just put our muscle behind this, it's going to work out. So I think you have a lot of lessons that have been learned on the part of senior officials. And I don't think we know yet exactly what their views are going to be on all these things as a result. It would be wrong to assume that Jake Sullivan is going to come back in and try to say and do exactly the same things as he would have done for Secretary Clinton several years ago. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So uh, again, not to to be a cop-out, but we just don't know yet. Um, It is partly a staffing question. You need people who are committed to the idea that we have to move off too much of a primacist version of American power. And whether we have those, we'll find out
0: hmm It's true, we don't know yet. One of the clearest promises that came from President Biden before the campaign was to follow through and hold the summit of democracies. I think now it's been changed to a summit for democracy, which is a small but perhaps very significant difference. In your arguments, you're both quite leery of an overly ideological US foreign policy but on the democracy promotion front. Is, is that something you still see as being a danger? Stacey, I'll ask you first.
1: How, when you say being a danger, what do you mean by that? In in terms of foreign policy just becoming more ideological, becoming more driven to intervene?
0: The way I read your arguments were there was a a balance that had to be struck between managing great power relations, a thin rules-based order, more restrained US foreign policy on the one hand, but without giving up on that idea of norm promotion, of having kind of a, a core group of democracies, promoting liberal order, a thicker international order, however you want to frame it. I'm just wondering how you read that and whether it's something you're concerned about.
1: A lot of it depends on how it plays out. So let let me draw a distinction, which I think is important. I think it goes back to that discussion about orders being a means to preserve rather than an in and of itself. So I think both Mike and I think democracy is extremely important and not just in the United States. And we do think it's a form of government um, that we would like to see all human beings have have the possibility of achieving and for the United States to be able to work on making that better at home as well. But I think in many ways, that type of commitment became about and manifest in promoting democracy internationally, right? And quite vigorously, as though the United States' role was to provide this as some sort of universally desired common good, right? And any resistance to that really needed to be met. If you turn the order back into a means rather than an end, and you begin to think about how does the order serve the cause of democracy, both in the United States and among its partners, you can actually begin to see that that type of aggressive democracy promotion is it can end up undercutting democracy at home. And we can think about things like the development of a surveillance state. And we can think about things like an overly militarized society. All of these things work against that core of preserving democracy. So my hope is that the Biden administration realizes that and they take steps to really center the idea that this is about promoting and preserving democracy at home and where it is rather than trying to uh, promote it abroad in ways that are counterproductive.
2: Yeah. And the thing I was going to add to that was just, I think that the the D10, the democracy summit, so to speak, makes sense when it is one piece of a multi-level rule-based order that you're trying to promote. When it becomes us against them, we're gathering the democracies to battle other people. Uh, then you're you're ruling out a lot of cooperative steps that, that could be beneficial to your interests. So as long as it's billed as and takes place as part of an order with multiple components and that's one of them, I think it can be perfectly helpful. Um, the danger comes when they're trying to organize democracies up on a stage to lecture the rest of the world about what, it, what they'll do.
0: To apply all of that to a very pertinent recent example, uh, at the time we're recording, the coup in Myanmar is, is only 24 hours old. Uh, Stacey, how would you apply those ideas specifically to this event, and what advice would you give the administration on how to respond to that coup?
1: Um, I, I think the first thing I would say, as a not regional expert, I hope I wouldn't be giving advice uh, to, to to the administration. I, I would I would encourage the administration to seek out people with regional expertise. But all that being said. Um, you know, I, I do think the one thing I would say is that this coup obviously didn't come out of nowhere. You know that this has been a really tenuous relationship um, between the civilian government and the military for a long time. We've also seen um, basically government and turn, turn a blind eye to a lot of human rights violations. Um, and so, with Rohingya, so I think what we're seeing here is something a really complex situation play out and it shows the fact that if the United States simply engages in broad human rights and democracy promotion, it can sometimes step into what are actually extremely complex domestic politics, right? I'm not saying that we shouldn't care. I care you know, deeply about you know, what's going on in Myanmar, particularly with the Rohingya. I do care deeply what's going on with the coup, right. but I'm not sure that the message here is intervening because this is not something, again, that is a straightforward situation where United States intervention would turn these events towards something that would look like the stabilization of democracy.
2: Mike. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And I think part of the challenge becomes even defining intervention, right? I mean, clearly, we're not going to be talking about uh, some kind of uh, process to go in and, and remove them from power. But even if you begin talking about economic sanctions against the regime and then others that support the regime, and you know, pretty soon you're you're trapping yourself in this spiral of um, intervention of different kinds that then often locks you in. You get legislation, all kinds of things happen. I think it's entirely possible for the United States to condemn a you know a seizure of power uh, to indicate that it wants and expects the return of uh, free elections and democracy and make other statements like that and maybe take some actions around the margin. But I mean, this is obviously a debate that goes back to our Cold War policies toward Cuba and Iran and others. And this idea about does forcibly isolating a, a non-democratic country contribute to its evolution toward freedom? And I think the, the record on that is very mixed. So again, I think there are ways to stand up for values at the same time as we are kind of broadcasting and acting with a greater humility uh, in terms of what we anticipate the rest of the world is going to allow the United States to dictate.
0: I'd like to just jump to the other side of the world now and ask you both about the Iran nuclear deal. Uh on the one hand, it would seem that uh, a very strong way for the Biden administration to signal that it is, it is committed once again to the rules-based order and that the United States sticks by agreements that it signs would be to simply re-enter the agreement as soon as possible. On the other hand, there's an argument that time has passed, that the threat has changed and that uh, the actions of the Trump administration have shown that the United States perhaps has even more leverage than it thought it had during the Obama period. So those two considerations in mind, I'd be interested in both your views on how Washington should approach the deal going forward.
1: I'm not sure if I buy the idea that the Trump administration shows that the United States had more leverage. And as a matter of fact, what really strikes me is the way that, you know, as the United States left the Iran deal, um, that we saw a couple of things. That first of all, uh, you know, we saw Europe in many ways scrambling. And attempting to figure out how it could perhaps make itself a little more autonomous, so it could continue to work its part in the Iran deal, so it could actually do things to counter, for example, what the United States uh, did with Iran and cutting it off from from the Swift banking system. Right. So I am not exactly sure that the Trump administration had the United, sh- should the United States had more leverage. And it's also just for me really disconcerting to see that a deal that really, to be clear, wasn't perfect, but I think put the United States and its allies in a in a really good position to, at the very least, monitor um what Iran was doing is basically seen this move back to threats about building up a nuclear program and enriching uranium and 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 all this. So I think that the United States is actually in a position where it's going to try to find itself trying to return to a deal that almost looks very similar, maybe attempting to fold in some of the issues surrounding the proliferation of missile technology, which I actually do think the Trump administration was correct that those types of deals should be part of broader proliferation deals as well. But it now has to rebuild up not only its uh, leverage and commitment to Iran, it has to bring the European partners and Russia in at the same time. And I think that's going to be extraordinarily difficult.
0: And China, yes.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And I'd say I totally agree that the, the last four years do not show that the United States had, great, I, you know, the hot mess of our policy with Iran was saved only by the instinctive risk aversion of that regime, uh, which in a number of cases, I mean, of course, there's a huge power disparity. So they're going to want to avoid an escalation. But in addition to that, they are typically risk averse. And so uh, we kept out of some escalatory situations just because of that, not because of our actions. The other thing about the last four years that is often forgotten is the secondary sanctions that we applied onto Europe and others Mm -hmm. in service of punishing Iran were horribly resented and are part of the Europe-wide sentiment, which was just shown in a new poll by the European Council on Foreign Relations, much more uh, strategic autonomy from the United States. I mean, that's a phrase, of course, they have been using for a while, but in popular and official uh, circles, I think there's a sense that uh, if that's how the United States is going to treat us, it's not the only reason why, but it's one of the reasons. And I'm more of a scholar of Korea than of Iran, and I can tell you that turning your nose up at a reasonable but not perfect nuclear deal and walking away is not a way to restrain a nuclear program unless you are prepared to go to war. Because we had an agreed framework with North Korea that would likely have seen some cheating and so forth, but by throwing it away because it was imperfect, we now have a North Korean regime with 60 or more weapons worth of fissile material. And so, I think the the Biden administration uh, correctly—I mean, their appointment of uh, Robert Malley is a great sign that they intend to to try to get back to some kind of regime of constraint as quickly as they can. And I think that's the only responsible course forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. Uh, well, we're out of time. I'd <laughs> just like to thank you both very much for your time and your insights. That was fascinating. Uh, we could have spoken for much longer. Uh, to our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Mike and Stacey's arguments, I encourage you to log on to Loan Institute website where you can read them at length in our latest digital debate on the United States and the rules-based order. You can read their arguments and those of our four other contributors. Thank you very much, Stacey. And thanks, Mike.
1: Thank you so much, Ben. And thank you, Mike.
2: Likewise. Thank you. Great to talk with you all.
0: You've been listening to Lowy Institute Conversations, a podcast from the Lowy Institute hosted by experts with production assistance from Jennifer Reinhardt. Thanks for listening. And we look forward to joining you for the next episode of Lowy Institute Conversations.